Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. We're going to begin with something that we had a tremendous amount of response to yesterday. And there was such an appetite for this discussion that I decided that we would get underway again. I just tweeted a few minutes ago that we would begin by talking about the carbon taxation, continuing the conversation about carbon taxes, whether it's the carbon tax in Alberta or the cap-and-trade that Premier Wynne in Ontario has added to her mess that is uh, really hurting a lot of people in in the province of Ontario. That's where I live, as you know. But the carbon tax in Alberta... Cap and trade in Ontario um, already had half a dozen tweets responding to that, and you can follow me on Twitter at the Roy Green Show. So we uh, we have the carbon tax in Alberta, the cap and trade in Ontario, and Saskatchewan, where we always uh, broadcast, of course, as well on uh, CJME in Regina and CKOM in Saskatoon. Saskatchewan is planning to take the Trudeau government to court to fight the carbon tax, which has been demanded by the prime minister. There's a great deal of unhappiness over the carbon tax in Alberta, at least according to the emails that I receive. And the cap-and-trade scheme in Ontario uh, is not very popular either. And in Saskatchewan, again, you're going to have to wait and see what a court decides when the premier takes Ottawa to court. But you know my view. And my view is the carbon tax and -and cap-and-trade will accomplish very little, if anything, as far as lowering global emissions are concerned. And Canada, on a global scale, is a tiny emitter but governments provincially will loot family budgets across this country, and the prime minister who claims his government will return to the provinces the money Ottawa collects from its carbon tax, prompting Premier Wall of Saskatchewan to quite correctly challenge Trudeau at his December 1st minister's meeting with the question, well, what's the point? Justin Trudeau could only glare and sputter. And remember, at that PM and premier's meeting last month, Mr. Trudeau was in danger of seeing his entire plan collapse until British Columbia Premier Christy Clark was enticed to join Mr. Trudeau. But this issue of a national carbon tax imposed by the federal government, if provinces decide not to go along, this entire issue boils down to whether or not the planet is being heated at a critical level where global warming created by humans and 21st century progress through the use of fossil fuels is a greater danger than ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and all the world's terrorist organizations combined, which is what the Obama government continues to insist is true, and Prime Minister Trudeau as well. You running your air conditioner in summer and heating your home in the winter using oil or gas or wood are posing a massive threat to the world's survival. Eating meat? Dangerous to the planet. Driving your car? Dangerous to the planet, unless it's an electric car. Participating in the economy, like buying a new smartphone? Dangerous to the planet. Fossil fuel extracts are used. Pretty much anything you do, other than walking or pedaling, is you endangering the planet, so they'll make you pay. They won't stop you because they like their jobs and know you'd fire them in a heartbeat if they tried to stop you, so they run a massive international tax and money distribution scheme, in my view. And if you're in Ontario, you're seeing the result in your electricity bill, which is literally harming people in the province. Some Ontarians who cannot afford the hugely increasing electricity bills, 70% over 10 years, have had their electricity cut off for months at a time. Others, often the elderly, on fixed income, have to choose between buying food and paying their electrical bills. You've heard them say that on this show. Trudeau has already committed $2.6 billion to the UN Climate Initiative, and Ontario and Quebec are engaged in a cap-and-trade scheme with California 
And through this scheme, worry the Auditor General, who two months ago pointed out, you have to listen to this, in an extensive report that Ontario plans to include any reductions of emissions in California and Quebec in the Ontario numbers. The Premier will be announcing, to quote the Auditor General directly, the potential exists for double reporting of emission reductions achieved in those jurisdictions. Well, let me just get rid of that. See, this is why I need a new phone. I turn it off, and it just refuses to cooperate. Anyway, Mr. Trudeau's already committed $2.6 billion to the UN Climate Initiative. Ontario and Quebec are engaged in a cap-and-trade scheme with California. And what the Auditor General had to say was, as I said, the potential exists for double reporting of emissions reductions achieved in those jurisdictions. Uh, and how does the wind government react when their scheme is pointed out to them? Well, the Premier's Minister of the Environment, Glenn Murray, said, a reduction in greenhouse gas pollution anywhere, not just locally, benefits us all. So California's and Quebec's emissions reductions will become Ontario's emission reductions because the three jurisdictions signed a deal together. Makes me feel a little queasy. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Here's the email that I received from my friend. I received a bill of $974.71 due September 26, 2016, for the period of June 20th to August 19th, of which electricity charges were $751.04, water charges $223.67. This is a one-home residence, right? It's just not a... We're not talking about an office building here. A residential home uh, included was a delivery charge of $160.51. I called Burlington Hydro to discuss and was told that a lot of people's bills were even worse and to speak to Kathleen Wynn. I advised and asked them to make a note that I would pay part now and the balance later, done to make a point that the bill was outrageous and that it would be a hardship for most people to find room in their budget for a payment that is double what it normally would be. I paid $474.71 on the due date of September the 26th. I surprisingly did not receive a call or a letter regarding the balance of $500 owing. I believe that they were perhaps being sensitive to the difficult situation that most people would have found themselves in and that they were at least satisfied if payments were being made. Uh, I received the next bill due November 24th, 2016 in the amount of $1,000.92. Uh, $1,092.08 being the $500 still owing plus $592.08 for the period from August 19th to October 20th. The new charges were $508.80 for electricity and $8,328 for water. The delivery charge this time was $128.89. I paid $592.08 on the due date. So the total of the two bills was $1,566.79, so $1,566.79, of which I paid $1,066.79. I intended to pay the balance in January. I never at any time received a call or a letter from Burlington Hydro regarding the arrears. Then on Thursday, December the 22nd, 2016, I found the attached hand-delivered collections notice in my mailbox threatening shutoff if payment of the $500 balance was not made by 4.30 p.m. on Saturday, December 24th. Christmas Eve. On a weekend. Office is probably closed. No one to take a call over the holidays. 
I did call the number listed on the bottom of the notice to express my outrage at the unconscionable timing and to note that I had not received a call or a letter prior to the notice, but all I got was a message machine. I paid the balance on Friday, December the 23rd. It is upsetting to think of how many Burlingtonians might not have been able to make payments with within 48 hours' notice and may have had their hydro shut off over the Christmas week or at the least spent the holiday period stressed over the possibility. People who, like myself, were not ignoring the bills but were making payments. Yes, I owed, but not even a call to discuss arrangements for payment of the balance. A hand-delivered threat at Christmas. And that is my friend's experience. And she's been in her house for a considerable period of time and has never had an issue, never had a payment issue, never had a collection notice. She wanted to make a point. And, of course, the hydro company made their point. So hand-delivered, and I'll read you part of this, was the collections notice that arrived. Uh, As of the date of this notice, your total account balance is $500. If you've already made the payment or have made arrangements for payment, please disregard this notice. Arrears on electricity, 193.05. Arrears on water, 306.95. Arrears due immediately, $500. Payment of the electricity arrears is required immediately, but no later than 4.30 p.m. on 12.24.2016 to avoid service disruption. Service disruption will take place between 12.27.2016 and one. 5 2017 without further notice service disruption may take place whether or not you're at the premise it goes on should your service be disconnected or interrupted cash credited check or credit card payment will be required in the full amount of the arrears and uh, they go on to point out that there's a reconnection charge of 185 dollars and another reconnection charge of 65 dollars the $65 if it's during regular business hours and the $185 if it's reconnection outside of business hours. They, they also uh, offer an op- opportunity to appeal or for assistance if you're suffering financial hardship. To determine eligibility, please contact the Salvation Army and they give a phone number. So here you are at the end of December and you receive hand-delivered a collection notice. Nobody's called. Nobody sent a previous letter pointing out that you owe $500. After my friend had made calls and said she was protesting the amount of money that she's being billed, as so many people in this province are doing, protesting what the hydro costs are. And the response is, well, we'll just cut you off. We'll just shut you off. We'll cut the power. And that's what's happened to a lot of people in Ontario. And you've heard some of them on this program. And you heard the executive director of the United Way for Bruce and Gray County say that she was concerned, is concerned, that some people will die because of the electricity costs, because of the cutoffs, the shutdowns. Now, Ontario Hydro will not cut anybody off between the 1st of December and the 1st of April, but smaller electricity companies will. This is just outright bullying. This is harming people. 
And the only reason these rates are being charged is because the provincial government made deals as they were selling Hydro One, made deals with the companies, signed contracts with the companies they made the sale to, that these companies were guaranteed a certain amount of money. And if there's a difference between what you use and what the government owes, according to the contract, you, the consumer, are going to have to pay that difference. The Auditor General for the province has already said that 30, I think it was $37 billion has been paid by taxpayers that shouldn't have been paid over a period of years. And more than $130 billion more will be paid between 2015 and 2030 because of the misfiring and the mishandling of money by the Wynn government. And what does the Premier say? Well, I made a mistake. I made a mistake. Some mistake. How many people got cut-off notices and weren't able to pay the balances they owed? They tried, but they couldn't. How many people got those notices, and how many people's Christmases did, did it spoil? And the bills were double and more than double the what they'd expected or at least received previously, and there's only an expectation of higher bills now. This is the way you treat your people. This saves the environment. This saves the planet. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Starting in, uh, in Alberta, we'll talk to Vi, who's in Edmonton. Hi, Vi. Hi. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. Thank you. So, go ahead. Yeah, uh, I think that carbon tax that we've got in the province of Alberta now is just a money grab for the province, for them to line their own pockets. Because the rebate they're giving us is it's a joke. Rebates have started to be sent out, but not to the people who need it most. Exactly. Like, my daughter got her half of her rebate, and she, I know she was being sarcastic when she said, well, now I can go shopping. Because it's not going to cover, like, they don't even tell you, like, we live on a farm, so it's going to go in our fuel and everything else that we use. So, so I, don't think, I don't think the government thought it through before they did this. Well, there is a, there's a belief system. There really is a belief system that has to do with climate change. And it's almost in a religion for some people. Sounds like it, yeah. And if you, if you oppose, then you're a, a bad human being. Well, then I guess I'm a bad human being. But your reality is on the farm, everything's going to cost you more. Mm-hmm. And f- people and who we have run... To travel everywhere. Like, there's no buses that come out here. Yeah, and agricultural, people who are involved in agriculture are not making a fortune anyway. Nope. Although they should be. They should, but... Because they're, 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 they're uh, holding up the rest, of, uh, the rest of us by producing the food that we eat. Exactly. And they're getting underpaid. And getting underpaid. But you're going to have to somehow recoup these extra costs... Somehow, gonna... but I don't know how. Yeah, what do you make of all the advertising that the province of Alberta is spending money on, some $9 million, to convince you that the carbon tax is a good idea? It hasn't convinced me, so they wasted the money on that, too. What about your friends and neighbors? They think the same thing. Like, most of us are farmers out in this area, so... Well, welcome over to, to, to the dark side, Vi. Thank you. Thanks for your call. Have a great rest of the day. Bye-bye. All the best for 2017. 800-263-2428 is the number on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. If, uh, If there's somebody listening who's had some challenges with an electricity bill, 
why don't you give us a call? We're not screening, by the way, because we just want to take the calls as they come. Uh, so if you've had trouble with an electricity bill, give us a call. If you're a business that has to, have to cut back, as, as many have, we've talked to uh, at least one owner of a large, formerly large grocery store. Now it's more of a corner store because their electricity bill went from 2000 to $7,000 a month. Oh. Michelle is in Orangeville, Ontario. That's a big O. Hi, Michelle. Happy New Year. Hi. Happy New Year. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Good, good. Um, so what I wanted to see, if anybody has any knowledge out there, um, so I am a full-time university student. I have two kids. Um, we've had a battle with hydro going on for the last four to five years. Um, we're fortunate enough because we do live in a co-op, so our rent is based on income. Um, so we're fortunate that way, but we've gone from like $200 hydro bills up to almost 650 Wow. For what? Yeah. For how long a period? Two months? Uh, no, that's only for one month. One so month? For one month, yes. We're in a townhouse, and I'm married. I have, like I said, I have two daughters, and um, this hydro issue has been going on we, you know, you're always receiving those threatening letters of disconnection, which, of course, are terrifying, you know, being a parent um, and trying to go through school. But what's happened now, which I'd like to see if, it, like I said, if anybody has any knowledge, um, is apparently over the last few months, um, the hydro company would always say, you know, as long as you pay your electricity portion of the bill, um, you know, we won't disconnect, you'll be fine, which, which was done. And then all of a sudden, um, I was called in to our co-op office and told that um, Orangeville, the hydro company had billed the town of Orangeville for the water portion of my bill over the last year, which was like 2000 and something dollars. Oh, my God. And, yeah, <laughs> I know. And apparently there's another bill coming in. And what is going to happen is I had to um, sit down with them, work out a repayment plan because I was told that they, like the, the co-op will have, or like the county of Dufferin will have to pay uh, that water portion of the bill, but I need to go on a repayment plan to pay them back. So not only will I have the astronomical hydro bill per month, but also uh, this repayment plan that I had to sign. Now, what's scaring me is that this repayment plan has to go before the board of, of directors here where I live. And I was told that if they don't approve it, that I will face eviction. You know, this sounds like the USSR. <laughs> it was absolutely terrifying. And I'm still feeling that way because I have lived here for 10 years, basically. No trouble at all. And then, and I don't see how this can be something that's legal because... I was no, you know what it is? You know what it is, Vi? It's a, it's a mistake. It is. That's what the premier said. She made a mistake. Yeah, you are, you're suffering because of her mistake. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And it's absolutely scary. It's, it's, so look, you know, at the, I, I gather there's no way that you can cover all of this off. No, there's no way. Like I, I saw it, um, you know, when you're told from the hydro company, oh, you're okay as long as you pay off the electricity portion of the bill, 
being in school, and I go to school, like I'm going through Laurentian University, I go to school right. all year, so I'm not working, but I am trying, and, and it's just... Um, it's very frustrating. Do you have a? Do you know if your MPP is uh, is liberal or, or NDP or PC? Uh, I'm not sure, actually. <laughs> I should probably know that, but I don't actually. Well, I'm sorry. I, you know, what about other people in the, in your co-op? Would can you? I'm trying to think of a way that you could exert some pressure, but they're just going to push back. And that's what's scary because. The people who run the office, like you think, like when I signed that form for the repayment plan, mm. I was thinking, okay, it's done. You know what? We'll, we'll just have to do it. Like we don't have a choice. We'll mm-hmm. we'll we'll stick to this plan. But then, when as soon as I was told that it's actually not up to them, it's up to the board of directors. So if they, if the people on the board choose to not accept my repayment plan, how how is that even possible? When I was doing what. The hydro company told me know, to do. I know. When you moved in there, you had an expectation of paying a certain amount for hydro. Right. And that's the way it was until right. this government yep. changed everything. Exactly. And now suddenly your 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 hydro rates have tripled. Oh yeah. Your water okay. rates have tripled. Yep. By the way, for the you're you're paying about I think the actual hydro is about twenty three percent of your bill. Right. The delivery charge is seventy seven percent of your bill. Yes. And yes. and I don't know, I, Vi, I wish I had an answer, but I don't have I an answer for you. No, I know, and, and that's the problem. That's why I was hoping... You know, the person, the people who have to have the answer are the people who run the government of Ontario. Yes. And that doesn't just mean the liberals, because they created the mess, and they deserve to be kicked out on their backsides for what they've I done. Agree. Right? <laughs> but yeah. I don't hear anything from Patrick Brown... And Mr. Brown's been on this program and talking about this issue. I didn't hear anything from Patrick Brown that made me feel that he had a particular uh, rescue plan uh, that that was ready to go. And I spoke with with Joe Oliver, the former federal finance minister who's going to be running for the progressive conservatives. He didn't have an immediate plan. And you hear nothing from the NDP. So... People are people are people cannot pay these bills, and people like you are getting hurt. Yes, and that's the frustrating part: is people who are trying to get ahead, go through school, you know, and just manage day day to day, and then you know you have this fear constantly over you, like you know, if you're living. I'm going to invite the environment minister on this show. Yeah. I wonder if he'll come on. We'll ask. Okay, well, I'll keep listening. <laughs> All right, and I, I'm trying to get some answers for you. The, okay. One of the best things we can do is just keep ringing the alarm bells. Yes. Keep ringing the alarm. All the How old are your kids? Uh, one is 15 and one is 9. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they're very good kids. Like, I mean, other, yeah. other than that, it's just the stress of having that constant fear of disconnection or, you know, and yeah. trying to, you know, you, you live in these places to try to get yourself ahead, and that's why I'm going through school. So you're right. trying all the time. But when your hydro bill is more than your rent, there's a problem, no. and, and there's no explanation and that's why. And it's going up. It continues to go up. Buy all the best. And I, I wonder what the print – thank you for the call – and I really mean all the best to you. We'll keep ringing the alarm bells. I wonder what Premier Wynne thinks when she hears a call like this. If she, if the Premier happens, and they do listen, you know, they, they, she's not necessarily listening to the show right now, but the, the parties do listen, and they, they do transcripts, and they play back, and they find out what we're doing, and they'll complain if they think we're doing something wrong.
You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. This is a story that people were, um, everybody was talking about this last year at some point or another. And it's the shootings in Chicago. In 2016, there were 4,378 people shot in Chicago. 4,378 people shot in Chicago. 3,665 wounded. 713 were shot and killed on the spot. Total homicides were 795. That's shot and wounded and died later. And in the first four days of this month, 53 shot in Chicago, shot and wounded 46, and shot and killed 7. I don't know how they differentiate between total shot and shot and wounded, but those are the stats that I have. And that is the question, is it just Chicago, or is Chicago just running ahead of an alarming curve? I've done a fair bit of reading on this issue over the last, particularly over the last couple of weeks, and have the opportunity now to speak with Dr. Gary Slutkin. He's an epidemiologist and infectious disease control specialist. He's also the founder and the executive director of Cure Violence, Cure Violence, uh, at the University of Illinois in Chicago. And Cure Violence addresses gun violence and other violence as a public health issue. And it's endorsed by the U.S. Conference of Mayors. Cure Violence is ranked as one of the top 20 NGOs in the world. And its methods are being replicated globally, including in this country. Cure Violence. Dr. Gary Slutkin joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Dr. Slutkin, what's it like to be in Chicago and hear these statistics and hear numbers like 4,378 people shot. We're hundreds of miles uh, distant of you. What's it like to be there and see and, and know this is going on? Well, um, it's primarily extremely frustrating. I mean, it's also obviously sad and horrible and tragic and humanitarian disaster. But for, uh, for those of us in the health sector who see this as a health issue and epidemic health. It's just incredibly frustrating. It's interesting that you say you see it as a, as a public health issue. And I never thought of it in those terms until I read about cure violence and that it made absolute sense to me. So would you explain to us what, how you came to form cure violence and what is it that you do? Well, um, I, I, as you mentioned, I'm an infectious disease doctor. I worked on other types of epidemics in other countries before returning to the U.S. And um, <clears throat> so when I began to look at uh, violence, I saw the same kind of patterns that we'd seen in other infectious diseases, the same kind of clustering, the same epidemic waves, and also this principally most important factor, which is that the, the greatest predictor of a violent event is a preceding violent event. In other words, one violent event leads to another, leads to another, just like flu leads to another case of flu, leads to another case of flu. So we we began to not only look at it, but treat it as a health epidemic issue. In fact, this is the only um, health epidemic issue that isn't primarily managed by the health sector. And uh, it still is not clear why that is, other than some mind frame that has um, developed um, about the people and so on. But anyway, it's just a behavior, a contagious behavior. And as um, uh, you know, the effects of treating it as an epidemic behavior are very, very powerfully effective and have been proven to be effective by many independent evaluations, including in Chicago. 
And, you know, just to stay on Chicago for a moment, yeah, it's, it's true that Cure Violence is working in about 25 cities and 70 communities, including in uh, Canada, but even in some places in the Middle East and South Africa. But Chicago has been a particularly frustrating place. Um, and um, this uptick that you mentioned, which um, really began when these health methods were discontinued. They were discontinued in March of 2015, approximately March 4th or 5th, and within uh, days of the uh, 13 of 14 communities being defunded, the, the violence in Chicago, which had been going down with the health approach, reversed course in what began to go up and has been going up ever since and ever since and more and more and more. And that, and just to add that the one community where it continued, that is to say the public health approach continued, the violence has continued to go down. So it's just another set of demonstrations that the Justice Department has proven this, the CDC, Hopkins, all kinds of studies. The public health approach and the public health way of looking at this is really what we need to see to move ourselves forward, not just in Chicago, but also everywhere. So how does it work? How does the public health approach to, the, to violence, and in Chicago it's the gun violence that's talked about, obviously. You can't ignore numbers like 4,378 people shot in a calendar year. How does the public health approach work? What do you do specifically? Well, there is a tremendous amount of specificity to it, as there is in the control of Ebola or control of cholera or something. So you ask yourself, how is uh, a killing prevented? Well, killing is prevented by having outreach workers, health workers, who are reaching the people who are likely to do shootings. And these are generally young people who um, are pretty resistant to most influences, except for the influences of their friends or people who are just like them who have been through the same thing. And so those are the people who we hire as health workers. And they exist in the neighborhood, and they're aware of when someone is upset or when something happened at a party or someone owes someone money and they're able to interact with them and they're just very, very highly qualified, highly trained, highly supervised, documenting their work. And um, they're able to cool people down and prevent events from happening, events being a shooting or a killing. Because you're talking then, you know, you're talking, you're talking about gang activity, right? These, well, most of them are gang shootings. These are, you know, this is one of the scary words that are used. Um, in, um, in the sensationalizing of what is essentially behavior. But most of the violence that's going on is by people who are shooting each other, not because of any uh, name or tag or gang, but more related to um, some insult or disrespect or um, something that they're concerned about or a retaliation of a friend uh, having been um, shot or injured or something like that. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Listen to this. This is also from Chicago about the gun violence. Police noted, this is from uh, April of uh, last year. Police noted there's been some progress in slowing the pace of rising violence. In March, murders rose by 29% compared with increases of 75% in January and 126% in February. So a murder increase of 29% is seen as a as improvement. Wow. Q 
cureviolence.org. I said .com. It's not. It's cureviolence.org. Dr. Gary Slutkin, an epidemiologist, infectious diseases control specialist, and the founder and executive director of Cure Violence at the University of Illinois in Chicago is with us. Uh, so, Dr. Slutkin, the question then has to be, the Cure Violence program was working. You had a reduction in the numbers of violent acts and the numbers of, 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 of shootings. And, and you described to us who the healthcare professionals were who were dealing with the individuals using guns to get even. So why in the name of God would anybody cut funding? Well, um, there's two aspects to this. The, the first is that, so yes, it's accurate that, and this, this is on our website, on the Cure Violence website, and many other, many reporters have written about it as well, that the epidemic in Chicago began and has been kept going because of the cuts to cure violence and to public health methods. That's why it's going up. Now, so the cut actually came not for any particular reason against cure violence or against public health or against the, the more proper understanding of what's going on. It was essentially a state that's having enormous fiscal difficulties um, and not just in this arena and stopped the funding of um, many things. Um, but the question still remains incompletely answered because why didn't somebody pick it up? And and so you have to say that there still is an, an old idea going on, which is not everywhere, that this is primarily some problem having to do with some criminals and bad people, and that people just need to be taught a lesson and all of this kind of ancient thinking. So the whole the whole idea of this as a health problem, which by the way has been picked up by dozens of other cities. Um, you know, Chicago gets compared to New York and Los Angeles. New York and Los Angeles have fully funded this approach. It's a, this is um, in the city and state budgets of New York. There are 19 cure violence sites in New York. You know, and we can say Los that Angeles, Chicago. That Chicago has, we can say that Chicago has doubled the murders of New York City right. and Los Angeles combined. Right, and New York and Los Angeles have consistent public health programming. For they have consistent cure violence or cure violence-like approaches. We helped set it up in Los Angeles. In New York, we not only helped set it up, but we've been we train almost all of their workers, and it's being run beautifully by the health department and the mayor's given them a lot of credit this year on keeping everything down in New York as well. And it's not just those cities. I mean, it's, there's many other cities now around the country in um, New Orleans and Philadelphia, Kansas City, Baltimore, Kansas City, Baltimore, and New York. The health department runs operations for effectively preventing a violence now. We, we know much more than we knew 15 or 20 years ago scientifically about violence as a health issue. And we've also have a lot more data and scientific information that shows that it reduces violence. And of course it does, because prevention is the key. Of course and it of is. Of course it does, because these young people are only listening to each other, and they're the people who have to be hired and trained. So I think uh, essentially what you're saying in Chicago is just not picking this up yet enough in terms of understanding the problem and the people is having a health problem, a serious health problem a contagious health issue that they pick up from each other 
and as a result of the trauma. Yeah, and, and you hear stories about people who just happen to be in the in the line of fire, like little children. Uh, I was reading about one little fellow who got was shot in the lungs, and they don't know whether he's going to survive or not. Just a little kid out playing. Uh, and in the beginning of 2017, clearly, um, cure violence needs to continues. be. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, 53 people shot in the first four days. Epidemic. 53 right. in the first four days with seven dead. This is still being is still untreated and unmanaged, according to the way that we in health see epidemics. So what? Uh, how, how do you how do you convince? Because again, my concern would be one of my concerns would be that some young people or younger people who have maybe a little bit too much testosterone flowing would look at what's going on in Chicago and say, hey, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to get even. This is what we will adopt. So how do you persuade, and I know it's going on in different countries and uh, in different parts of the world, but how do you persuade various jurisdictions that are under economic duress to nevertheless put in place cure violence to preclude the kinds of numbers, the kinds of activities that you're still seeing in Chicago? Well, well, many cities have um, moved forward and are using cure violence or other very closely related um, health epidemic models now. But your, your point is really still so highly relevant, and your listeners are probably aware of this in a way that not everybody sees violence as a health issue. They don't see this as, they, they may see it as a matter of life and death, but matters of life and death are health issues. They may be aware of the trauma, but what does that mean? It means it's a health issue. It goes to hospitals. They mean it's a health issue. It's a behavior. What does that mean? It's a health issue. You know, these are just young people who are affected by their friends, you know, with a contagious set of behaviors that they pick up. Most people who have kids, they know their kids pick up behaviors from their friends. And within this contagious nature of behavior is a health, an unhealthy behavior, whether it's smoking behavior or right. eating behavior or, um, you know, drug using behavior or violent behavior. And so the, it's, this, this is the health sector's issue. And this is what pure violence is really doing now is, is this broader scope of convincing okay. the public, helping the public see that this is a health matter and that this is the way out. I mean, I just want to add, there are neighborhoods that used to be extraordinarily dangerous, neighborhoods as dangerous as anywhere, that have gone a year to two years down to zero shootings and killings in Baltimore and in New York. And there, there are Dr. Slutkin, I, I, I have to jump in because of the clock, but I, I do thank you for joining us. And cure thank violence is, is just an absolutely timely, uh, on-the-mark uh, response to what's going on. Thank you so much for your time, sir. Thank you so much, Ray. Dr. Gary Slutkin, CureViolence.org. Have a look at that. It's, it's amazing. It really is, and so effective. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I have to share a quick story with you before I talk to my friend Paul Levinson, professor of communications and media studies at Fordham University in New York City, pop culture specialist, international best-selling author, and his most recent book is Fake News in real context. I have to tell you, now let me put Paul on the air. You'll appreciate this. Also, music producer and singer, I mean, what haven't you done? Uh, that's a good point. I'm not that much of a painter, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm good in terms of writing and, and putting together sound, 
but visual uh, imagery isn't my forte. Well, I tell you, you're a very gifted guy. You've written so many books, and you've had uh, so many honors bestowed upon you for your for your writing. And uh, we played one of your uh, one of your records from the '70s, or still called records, on the air a couple of months ago. So I'm I'm I don't know where you get the time, Professor. Uh, well, sleep isn't all it's cracked up to be. So. <laughs> <laughs> I got to tell a quick story here, sure. and, I, and I sort of teased you in uh, in an email. I uh, teased the story the other day. We're talking about, and we're going to be talking about Megyn Kelly moving to uh, NBC from Fox and $15 million a year and deciding not to take the $20 million Fox offered her to uh, to stay and the huge dollars that are being uh, paid certain people, Howard Stern, $100 million a year for his first five years at Sirius. Now he's taken a pay cut. He gets only $90 million a year, but he only works three days a week. Um so, so, Paul, uh, about 20 years ago, I, uh, I, I did a show that was, was aired in Toronto on uh, what was then Talks 640, which is AM640 now, and this program airs on AM640, and on 900 CHML in Hamilton, where it also airs, and where I actually sit and do the show physically from. And we did a simulcast with WABC Radio, 77 WABC. And uh, it was about Bill Cosby, and it was about Bill Cosby's extramarital affairs in the mid-'90s that were being talked about. And so we did these simulcasts, two of them, and I was on the air with the two hosts of the, uh, of the show at WABC. And I got a call from WABC's uh, programming staff, from the program director, um, saying, you know, you, you're really good. We, we're very impressed with, uh, with, with the way you handled yourself with our hosts. Would you like to come and work here? And I said, uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, he said, but it would be a Saturday and Sunday show only. It would only be weekends for now, but uh, we're pretty sure we'd get you Monday to Friday. So I, I said, uh, yeah, I think uh, I'd like to do that. But you have to understand, I'm on a five-day-a-week pay now, and you're asking me to work two days a week. He just laughed, just laughed. He said, Roy, don't worry about that. <laughs> so I went to see the president of our company, who's also a friend, and I told him, and he said, uh, all the best, Roy, uh, go for it and, and, and let me know in enough time so that I can find somebody to do your show. So about a week later, he comes to me, Paul, and he says, uh, what's going on with the uh, New York situation? And I said, oh, I haven't heard from him. And he says, not like you to not follow up. So I said, oh, well, I will call. So I called. And I asked for the person I'd, um, I'd spoken to and wasn't there. And I no longer there. And I, you can see it coming, eh, Paul? And I said, uh, so, yeah, my name is Roy Green. I'm calling from Canada. I'm a broadcaster in Toronto and Hamilton. I was offered a job at WABC. And said, uh, oh, no idea who you are, buddy. Uh, sorry, but the, that management team's gone. <laughs> so with the management team being gone, so was the job opportunity. And uh, I don't know. I don't know if I'd been sitting on million-dollar contracts or... Or not, but I'll never forget that that call. No idea who you are, buddy. Oh, okay. Well, bye. And I went to see the president of our company. I said I'm staying. Yeah, you know, listen. Life is filled with uh, stories, uh, moments, eh? Like that, you know. Uh, I, I've had a lot of uh, interesting stories like that too. When I was in the uh, the music uh, business, when I was a songwriter. The the Vogues, which who had some, I remember the records, Vogues. Five o'clock world, yeah, yeah. one actually recorded one of my songs, Unbelievable. 
And right around that same time, uh, I, you know, the Vietnam War was going on, and, um, you know, there was, uh, you know, I, I'd been a student, my student deferment was, you know, close to, uh, you know, running out, and they were doing a, a draft lottery. Anyway, long story short, um, these two things happened at the same time, the draft lottery and the Vogue's recording my song. And like this little voice in my head said, well, wh which, you know, would you rather have? You can't have both. You know, you can't have a hit record by the Vogue's and get a very high number that is at the end uh, you know, of the 365 roster in the draft lottery. And I thought it through, and it was a tough decision, but, you know, I, I was against the Vietnam War. I didn't want to go in the Army. I probably would have gone to Canada, by the way, if I had been drafted. That's how much I was against the war. So I sort of made a decision in my head saying, well, you know, I'll, uh, I, I would rather get a, a high draft uh, number that is, uh, you know, further down the chain, like close to 365, than have the Vogue's release unbelievable and I become a hit songwriter and probably make a million dollars. And so, in fact, that's what happened. I got a very good draft number and I never was uh, drafted, uh, but the Vogue's at the last minute, got a new producer and decided to go in a completely different uh, direction from what my song was, which was more like, you know, their original hits, and instead went more like in an easy listening pop direction. And uh, that was, you know, pretty much one of the high points of almost having made it in my music career. So... Yeah, at least, you know, as long as you're knocking on the door and you have opportunities, I've always looked at it this way. You just you just keep pushing. You just keep – and you do what feels right for you as well. I had a job offer. I had an opportunity to go to Atlanta. I had an opportunity uh, very close to an opportunity to go to Chicago. And Atlanta didn't feel right and Chicago didn't feel like right, so I didn't pursue them. But um, – yeah, just I was just thinking about that because of all of the money, fifteen million dollars. Uh, meanwhile, the uh, after Megyn Kelly leaves, the uh, the broadcaster who's going to be doing the seven p.m. slot on Fox, who um, oh god, I can't remember her name now. Uh, she's on at nine o'clock in the morning now, or has been for some time. Um, somebody will send me a, a note and tell me who it is. But she was making $700,000 a year, and Megyn Kelly, who's working with her, is making $15 million. I don't know if that, if that establishes good working relationships or the fundamentals for good working relationships. No, it's tough. Look, and, and uh, Megyn Kelly's not the only person who's moving to NBC or one of NBC's affiliates. Greta Van Susteren, who left Fox a, a while ago, and I'm sure she's not being paid as much as Megyn Kelly, and wasn't being paid as much as Megyn Kelly. She's actually just tomorrow, that is Monday, uh, taking over the 6 p.m. hour on MSNBC. So, you know, to some extent, it's like musical chairs. Yeah, it is. They they move they move from network to network. But the mummy, mo the money, not the mummy. The money certainly is good. You're listening to the Roy Green Show weekends from two to five on AM 900 CHML. Paul Levinson, Professor Paul Levinson is my guest, professor of communications and media studies at Fordham University in New York City, also pop culture specialist, international best-selling author, and uh, his new book is Fake News in Real Context. 
Now, uh, Professor Levinson, Megan Kelly, is she a bona fide media star with longevity? And are you surprised that she chose NBC for $15 million, which was what she was being paid at Fox, reportedly, and rejected a $5 million raise from Fox? I think it was a wise decision on her part. I, I'm not surprised she made it. And, yes, I think she is a bona fide media star because of the way she went up against and stood her ground against Donald Trump. And in retrospect, among the many astonishing things in the 2016 election, Megyn Kelly uh, going at it with Donald Trump, asking him th that question in the first place about the language he uses uh, towards women, and then when Trump typically after that debate trashed Megyn Kelly uh, on Twitter and all over the place, she didn't back down. And I think that that interlude in and of itself catapulted Megyn Kelly into a much more prominent and important position, and, and a position in which she is now admired by many people, including me, who didn't particularly admire her previously. You know, if you look at her record, part of what she did in her tenure at Fox was indulge in nonsense about African Americans standing in front of polling booths. This was probably back in 2012 or 2008. I don't even remember, but, but basically, the, you know, the, the Black Panther Party trying to suppress white voting, talking about fake news. That was a complete nonsensical story. So, you know, she was a, a typical Fox uh, anchor uh, until uh, that debate uh, that she was uh, co-moderating uh, and uh, when she put it to Donald Trump. So, But here's the question, Paul. Sure. So she has this, this, she has this spike of attention in 2016. And it was a tremendous spike of, of attention, but she's also had, as I understand, her ratings situation at Fox has been that she's had tremendous ratings, but she's also had periods where her ratings actually dip below CNN. So she's been up and she's been down. She hasn't been like Bill O'Reilly just riding the top of the crest all the time. And I'm just wondering whether, given the, um, given the, uh, the changing mood of, uh, of viewers and the constant change of media platforms, whether she has the power to ride that 2016 moment for years. Because remember, when Katie Couric left the Today Show, she disappeared into the NBC wallpaper. Mm -hmm. And she was a huge name. Yeah. Well, that's a different question. I still think it's a good move for her, because she had nowhere to go at Fox. And, and this does give her a, a new environment. But there are some deeper structural issues here. For example, the general pressure on networks in general, on network news in particular. They occasionally do well, especially during elections and so on. But by and large, the general thrust of television viewing has gone from network to cable and now to live streaming on Netflix and Amazon for entertainment, but even the beginning of news programming as well. So the evolution of media is going against network television, and it's going to make it that much harder for Megyn Kelly or anyone to establish herself on essentially an old-fashioned dinosaur of a network, uh, which is what NBC is. But that said, 
it still does draw millions of people, yeah. and she still could break out and break through. Here's another way of looking at this. We've gone well beyond the age of the famous world-renowned anchor, you know, the age of Walter Cronkite, even Dan Rather, Huntley and Brinkley, all those people. That's gone. But networks aren't yet quite gone, and conceivably someone in the right time slot with the right appeal could establish a name. So, so, so tell me this. How do, they, how do they justify these massive salaries? Because they weren't paying at times where the ratings were even higher than they are now, and they were the only show in town. They weren't paying comparable salaries, as far as I know, except to their absolute super, super, superstars. They're not. They weren't paying uh, the uh, the potential stars like Megyn Kelly the kind of money that's being paid now. Is, is this? Why is the, how's this happening? Well, because it's happening all over. It's it's what's going on in sports. Yeah. yeah. There's been some movement to pay sports stars less. It's what's going on in movie making. Uh, Everybody's yeah, cashing so in, right? The the fact is, when you break through into uh, an arena where you can get paid millions of dollars for what you do. That's just a question of how good you are as a negotiator, how much of a demand there is for you. But, yeah, you can get fifteen, twenty thousand, 20000 even more. I, I think it is interesting Million. that she's gone for the 15000 didn't accept uh, Fox's counteroffer to bump her salary to, I'm uh, sorry, $15 million, to bump her salary to $20 million. Uh, I think that shows she has a head on her shoulder because... Money is very important, but it isn't the ultimate most important thing. And if she's thinking about her future, she wants to establish herself in a place where she can have a longer tenure than it's possible. You know, the one thing I also read is that, uh, and we know that, uh, I know that media stars in the U.S., from conversations I've had with people in the United States media, very territorial. And from what I understand, Matt Lauer from the Today Show didn't find out about Megyn Kelly moving from Fox to NBC until an hour or two before the announcement was made, and he apparently blew a gasket, although he makes $25 million a year, so I guess he's probably still happy, but it's, it's a very territorial reality, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, you know, I don't, don't understand that at all. You know, if I were being paid uh, $25 million, uh, say, at Fort University, <laughs> I'd, I'd some uh, other professor was hired uh, in my department and getting paid $15 million, I, I wouldn't be upset. By me neither. I, if you just, you know, I've often said, I've, I've often said, I just signed a new $5 million contract with Chorus Radio. My problem is getting them to sign it. <laughs> I know. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.